this podcast. presentation is intended only for immature audiences. And God said, let there be F-bombs. And they were good. And they multiplied right here in this podcast. Oh, boy. me fatter for I have sinned. It's been four months since my last episode. Where were you? Why didn't you call? Where have you been? We were worried to death. Oh, well, sorry about that. It really couldn't be helped. Hansel's moon rocks are so heavy with symbolism, they kept me busy in the library way longer than I could have imagined. I kept coming across new information that begged inclusion in this episode but I needed to read and digest a whole bunch of it before I could figure out where it belonged. Of course, most of this new information was very old stuff. Stuff that I'd never bothered to read before. Uh, excuse you. Once I did, though, a funny thing happened. What? Ideas that I'd spent my entire life taking as a gospel suddenly appeared in a completely new light. Huh, new to me, that is. See, there were texts and academic papers that had always been there, kind of like distant stars. And after traveling for ages, when their light finally hit my eyeballs, bam! Just like that, I got religion. Glory! Glory! Amen! And amen. Okay, not like that. Let's just say I got it. Let's hope you make the most of it, my boy. Hey there, and welcome back to the Hansel and Gretel Code. This here is episode 27. Oh, yes, y'all! We are gonna do this again, like it's normal anymore. In our last episode, we got pretty deep into the formidable rabbit hole known as Hermeticism, and found ourselves hot on the trail of Hermes Trismegistus, otherwise known as Thrice Greatest Hermes. Yeah, that's right. He's the famous guy whose name comes up in all the hermetic material, and was always presumed to be its author. There goes one of the most remarkable men the world has ever known. Do you have any idea who he really is? No, and I don't think that's important. It's enough to know that he's the Lone Ranger. Okay, so he's not the Lone Ranger. And he wasn't even the author of those texts. 
Still, I think it really is important to know exactly who Hermes Trismegistus is or was. Why? Well, according to history, Hermes Trismegistus was a prophetic, wise, and godlike character whose mysterious identity was something everybody was, and still is, eager to weigh in on. Yeah, so what? Well, plenty of academics, past and present, have given it their best shot by guessing at his identity. Except it's obvious. All they were doing was applying logic to something that logic alone can never fully fathom. Or even accept. Why not? You and I know that the Hermetic Arts, Astrology, Alchemy, and Theurgy, the big three that gave him his famous epithet as Thrice Great, well, they're all intuitive arts. And so applying my intuition to the question of Hermes Trismegistus, I was able to discover his true identity. And I had promised to reveal it in this episode. I remember. So when I do tell you who he really was, you're not only going to understand a whole lot more about who Hansel is, you're going to understand a whole lot more about your own intuition as well. All right, if you say so. So before I spill the beans on Hermes T, remember that last time we uh, kind of fell asleep. And that's when we caught a dreamy glimpse of the Emerald Tablet. Not the size of the dog in the fight, but the size of the fight in the dog, right? Oh, not the Emerald Isle. The Emerald Tablet. Uh, <laughs> come on, you know the Emerald Tablet, right? As above, so below. It's one of the three most famous of all the texts attributed to Hermes Trismegistus. Who cares? Hey, we're only dealing with this guy and Hermeticism in general because Hansel's moon rocks were specifically meant to symbolize the Hermetic arts and everything they mean to humanity. Bollocks, just bollocks. Yeah, well, that whole business of Hansel sneaking outside the house to collect pebbles that looked silver under the light of the moon? Well, that makes the intuitive connection to Hermeticism pretty obvious. Especially when you consider why Hansel was collecting them in the first place. Maybe. And it became even more obvious after we took that time machine trip up to Sweden and met Johannes Burius the intuitive Swedish polymath. And just taking a peek at his writings, we found rock-solid connections between Hansel's moon rocks, runes, and each one of the hermetic arts. Remember? No. Okay, I get it. Hermeticism is one hell of a complicated subject that logically seems way off topic for a German fairy tale. Got that right. And sure, it may be a rabbit hole. But for my money, it's a deeply rewarding one that our author actually wanted us to enter and explore. So we could sidestep it and just move on to the next line of the fairy tale. 
Oh, I think that we should do that. Yeah, but if we did, we'd be missing out on way too many of the jewels hidden in plain sight. Which is to say, between the lines of this fairy tale. And that's why we're about to go even deeper into the infernal depths of Hermeticism, and specifically into one of its darkest and least explored tunnels. Theurgy. Aww, why? Well, that's so we can meet some honest-to-God theurgists, who are, of course, ancestors of Hansel and the Holzhacker family. I don't wanna! Hey, don't worry. This is gonna be fun. Are you sure? Oh, yeah. We're even gonna play a little game of, uh, Simon Says. Really? Yeah. Come on, let's go. Okay, will you go first? Part 1 Teil 1 In which we finally meet the Kumian Sibyl and learn about her travel agency business. I don't know where to go next. So this rabbit hole of theurgy, it ain't no ordinary hole in the ground. It's got a bunch of entrances scattered around the Mediterranean. This one is located just outside of Napoli. It leads all the way down to Hades, and it's guarded by the Cumian Sibyl. Who's that? Well, she was the priestess who lived in a cave at this particular entrance to the rabbit hole. And she, like all ancient Sibyls, provided prophecies and divinations to anyone who was brave enough, or desperate enough, or maybe even just like us, smart enough to seek her out. So dark. Now, just so you know, divinations and prophecies are a legitimate product of theurgy. And uh, sure, I know, that kind of thing has always been easy to fake. The Cumian Sibyl, though, she had a reputation for coming up with the real deal. Seriously? Now, if you're looking for proof, or some kind of testimonial, one of our most famous customers was Aeneas, a refugee from the Trojan War who, with a little help from the Sibyl, found fame and fortune, and got a nice epic poem named after himself. Not bad, eh? Just show me the money. Of course, Aeneas wasn't an ancestor of the Holtzhacker family, but he was an ancestor of Romulus and Remus and Julius Caesar. Gallia est omnis divisa in partes tres, quarum unam inculum <coughs> Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. What are you doing, you moron? Okay, okay. Aeneas sought out the Sibyl because he wanted to have a little FaceTime chat with his uh, dead father, Anchises. And well, uh, that was a hell of a long time ago. So the technology at the time was pretty antiquated, which meant that Aeneas had to go the long route and travel through this very same tunnel of theurgy in order to reach his dad all the way down there in Hades. That's a journey known as a 
katabasis. So what? Well, in order to book a katabasis, you needed the services of a theurgic travel agent and guide like the Sibyl. As she herself put it, Getting down there is the easy part. Getting back up. That ain't no slam dog, buddy. Oh, that's not good. Later theurgists pulled a switcheroo that pretty much revolutionized the sibling travel agency business, and it did so by eliminating some of the danger. How? Well, they used a brand new technology known as necromancy. What's that? In necromancy, the theurgist calls up the spirits of the dead and makes them come to you instead of you having to go down and meet them on their turf. And that automatically eliminates the danger of not finding your way back up from Hades. Oh, good. Uh, you and I, though? We're going to do it the old-fashioned way and let those spirits chill while we make the trip down to visit them. <sighs> oh, no. Hey, we really do do need to meet the Kumi and Sybil. And she's too old school for necromancy. Besides, when it comes to theurgy, performing that kind of magic, necromancy, for ourselves, ooh, that ain't quite the wisest thing in the world. Nonsense. Yeah, well, first of all, we need a damn good grimoire. What's that? You know. It's that spirit phone book we mentioned back in episode 22. The one with all the correct names and numbers and such. Oh, yeah. And forget about that other theurgic technology. The one that critics and academics have always called animating statues. Oh, what is that? Well, you remember that from episodes 25 and 26, don't you? No. Okay. We said that the ancient theurgists would whisper a request into the ear of a statue, representing a god or a goddess, and then patiently wait for that deity to come down, enter into the statue, and give an answer, in the form of a physical nod of the head, what Jung called a numen or a sign. I remember... Well, as I said, that kind of theurgy, that amounted to calling divine spirits down from above. In this case, we'd have to call spirits up from below. And when you do that, you never know for sure who's going to show up. Uh-oh. Yeah, not unless you're a pro yourself. Or you've got a professional operator making the call for you. And that's what the Sybil was. She was a professional theurgist, always ready to act as a go-between or medium, which is what any priestess or priest really is. Now, she performed the requisite ritual of patient, meditative waiting for an answer from the Divine Spirit on behalf of anybody unwilling or unable to do that for themselves. Anyway, the Sibyl wrote down her numinous oracular answers on oak leaves, 
And the story goes they were somehow collected in books that she herself sold to the last king of Rome. Um, yes, you're getting two for the price of one. Wikipedia tells us that, according to Tacitus, the books were kept in the Temple of Jupiter on the Capitoline Hill in Rome, to be consulted only in emergencies. And the temple burned down in the 80s BC, and the books with it, necessitating a recollection of Sibylline prophecies from all parts of the empire. These were carefully sorted, and those determined to be legitimate were saved in the rebuilt temple. (laughs) What a waste of time. I don't know about that. This collecting of lost prophecies, it sounds an awful lot like the fate of so much fairy tale material in the hands of the Grimm's, don't you think? No. Well, trust me, oak leaves or not, it's the Kumian Sybil who's been answering all of the questions we've been asking of this fairy tale material. She's the one who's been leading both of us, you and me, to all of this wild ass intuitive, historical, and theologic material by acting as go between. That is, between you and me and the author of Hansel and Gretel. Wow! So in this episode, instead of hopping on the time machine, the Sybil's going to take us through the very same passageway she led Aeneas through on his way to visit his father. That's awesome. Okay, just so you know, the story goes that before they got started, Aeneas had to jump through a couple of hoops. The most difficult one was that he had to break off a branch of gold growing on a particular tree in the forest around Naples. Why, 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 why? Well, well, that was so he could bring it as a hostess gift for Persephone, the queen of the underworld. Oh boy, oh boy. Eh, don't worry. I'm not going to ask you to go to my donation page and break off any of your hard-earned cash. Although, uh, just in case you wanna, I'll leave a link. But if you would, please donate the grace of a rating or review of the podcast. Or just shoot me an email and let me know you're listening. I'm sure Persephone will make sure that you will be royally entertained. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? I love it. And before we start, I want to mention two super friends and supporters of this podcast. One of them is Danny Van Leeuwen, a fellow podcaster and friend from Boston. Danny's a longtime healthcare professional and patient advocate. You can hear Danny and his guests discussing best health on Health Hats, the podcast. You can also find him on his YouTube channel. I'll leave a link. I am Danny Van Leeuwen, and I approve this message. My other super friend and supporter is Edwin Alvarez. Edwin's a dedicated practitioner of Chinese medicine and acupuncture in Chicago. He's also a good friend of mine from my time studying and teaching at Pacific College of Chinese Medicine in Chicago. Since graduating over 10 years ago, 
Edwin has immersed himself in a deep study of the sometimes enigmatic, always fascinating classics of Chinese medicine and Asian culture. So, in some ways, doesn't surprise me at all that this deep dive into a classic story of Western culture yeah, it appeals to his intuitive nature. You can find Edwin's practice in the Chicago phone book and on the web. I'll leave a link. So, a big thank you and shout out to Boat Use Guys. Not only for your generosity in throwing some real bread my way, but for the grace of letting me know that you're actually listening to the podcast. I really, really appreciate that, my friends. Part 2 Teil 2 In which we get to choose a summer camp. The Vatican uh, opens the books. And we get to play a game of telephone. Hello? Is there somebody there? Can you hear me? You're scaring me. So, uh, right out of the gate. The first guy we meet is someone you're likely to have heard of. No, really? Yeah. His name is Simon. And he's an honest-to-God celebrity who became famous because of a write-up he got in the New Testament. Now, specifically, we're talking about the Acts of the Apostles. Chapter 8, verses 9 through 24, where they call him... Spaghetti. Uh, no. They call him Simon Magus. Now, the Bible says that Simon was something of a magician or sorcerer who either astounded people or bewitched them. All depends which version or translation of the Bible you read. Of course, his real claim to fame is that the ugly ecclesiastic practice of simony was named after him. Yep. Yeah, well, apparently it's because he tried to buy his way into a very specific, but uh, utterly enigmatic aspect of the magical mystery tour, or I mean, the miracle working powers of the apostles. Of course, the Bible makes it sound like Simon was just another wise guy trying to bribe the apostles. After all, calling him a magus eh, makes him just like the three wise guys, or I mean, Wise men. You know, the Magi who followed a star to Bethlehem? Don't you think? No, sir. Well, you do remember how simony worked its way into our fairy tale from back in episode 5, don't you? No. Yeah, well, I didn't think so. Okay, simony came to mean the buying and selling of indulgences. Those uh, get-out-of-jail-free, or I mean get-out-of-purgatory cards for yourself or your dead relatives. For century after century after century, that was the top-selling item in the Vatican gift shop. Oh, yeah. Back upstairs, though, in the executive suite? Ooh, simony meant the buying and selling of lucrative uh, positions. You know, a la Rod Blagojevich. And you use the same techniques in Chicago's no different. 
They just got a lot more violent thugs like Obama. Capiche? Oh, brother. Okay, okay. We're talking ecclesiastic positions, like bishoprics and such. Each of those offices, and there must have been hundreds, if not thousands of them, spread all across medieval Europe, it had a nice income attached to it. And even if you had to kick the majority of that action back upstairs, you still got your taste. Yeah, come to think of it, it was almost like becoming a made guy. Yeah, once they made you a bishop or a cardinal and gave you a crew, nobody could fuck with you. Nobody except uh, maybe a commission of bosses or the capo di tutti capi, the pope himself, that is. But I digress. <clears throat> Here's the thing, though. The deeper I got into reading about Simon, the more I came to wonder if making him the fall guy for Simony eh, wasn't just a clever hatchet job on the part of the bosses. See, the weird thing about Simon is all that New Testament talk about his magic or sorcery it sits right next to talk about apostles doing the very same thing. What the hell? Yeah. Except in their case, it's not called magic. It's called performing signs and working miracles. Amen. Yeah, well, the New Testament calls Simon a magician. But my sense is, he was really just an honest, and honest to God, theurgist. You're kidding, right? Hey, this is no joke. See, theurgy pretty much amounts to calling on your god or goddess to do what otherwise seems humanly impossible, which uh, is what a miracle is, right? Precisely. And the difference between a miracle and magic is uh, what exactly? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> It's a pretty important question, because even though the Bible doesn't call anybody a theurgist, that's exactly what any biblical character performing saints and working miracles was. And I do mean anybody. Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, him too. What are you talking about? Well, I thought maybe it was just me who couldn't help wondering why all those biblical miracle workers got tossed into two different camps. Huh? Yeah, we're all familiar with Camp Holy Holy, right? Of course. Right. Of course, there's Old Camp Holy Holy and New Camp Holy Holy. Obviously, the counselors at Old Camp Holy Holy, well, they're all those Old Testament miracle workers. You know, guys like Moses and Joseph and Daniel, just to name a few. Definitely. And then at New Camp Holy Holy, you get all your New Testament miracle workers. Guys like the Apostles and St. Paul. And, uh, for Christ's sake, what about the big guy himself, J.C.? Excuse me? Oh, what do you think? Changing water into wine and curing leprosy? Without antibiotics? To say nothing about raising the dead. That's all pretty impressive stuff, don't you think? Yes, sir. 
Yeah, I think so too. But then across the lake, you got that other camp. The one with all the bad guys. The one where all of their miracles are called sorcery and magic. Naturally. And that's Camp Simon. Affirmative. So the Bible doesn't list any of Simon's miracles. It just says, For some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. Yeah, so what? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that calling Simon's miracles sorcery doesn't prove that Simon was a bad guy. In fact, it's not all that hard to read between the lines here and understand that the biblical description of Simon was way more Fox News than CNN. What? Yeah, the only thing that's obvious is that by calling Simon's miracles sorcery, they tried to make us understand that Camp Simon was on the wrong side of the lake. And just in case we didn't get the message, the Bible says, He boasted that he was someone great. That, that's bad. Yeah, well, that's what we're supposed to think. Except, I don't know. What's wrong with a little boasting? When you know you're pretty effing good. I am the greatest. Yeah, right? Oh. So mixed in with all the propaganda and character assassination, the Bible still manages to give us some facts about Simon and about his camp. It says, All the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of Gad. Some people say. Fact is, Simon really did have a loyal following of very happy campers, who must have been pretty impressed by all of his uh, sorcery. They were called Simonians, and according to some guys we're going to hear from later, they, like modern-day Rajneeshis, ooh, they were into free love, baby. I like that. Now, my point is, it's more than possible that what Simon was doing wasn't any different at all from what the apostles were doing, none of which was third-rate magic in the form of entertainment. You know, plain old sleight of hand, like pen and teller. In all likelihood, it was honest-to-God theurgy, with honest-to-God miracles. Nevertheless, according to the bosses, Hanging out in Camp Simon, Ooh, that was a big bozo no-no. Hey, that kid, that's a bozo no-no! Oh, God, oh, Jesus. Something I find pretty weird, though, is that the Bible never accuses Simon of being in league with demons and devils. And again, it wasn't long before that kind of unspoken biblical innuendo was turned into a more Fox Newsy gospel truth. By all sorts of shills, or I mean, pious apologists and champions of Christianity. In other words, through a very lengthy game of telephone, the biblical rumors about Simon, they passed from writer to writer to writer, until everyone in Christendom came to believe that Simon, along with every other theurgist outside the Vatican franchise, was in league with the devil. 
absolutely. Okay, so it looks like the Kumian Sybil is giving me the high sign. So I guess it's time for a pit stop. So box, 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 box. Can we say it now? No, stay, stay For our next episode, she's got at least seven guys lined up who want to play Simon Says with us. Before we go, though, she just wants us to know that even though she was known for oracles and trips to Hades, that was never the aim of her theurgic practice. However lucrative her divination-slash-travel agency business was, it was all just a byproduct of her theurgy. And herein lies the crux of the matter of theurgy. Not to mention a whole shitload of medieval history. See, the real practice of theurgy, which is no joke, amounts to getting yourself right with your god or goddess, whoever the heaven or hell that might be. The object of theurgy was never magic or miracles. The object was to return your own soul to its divine origin. That was the real magic. In fact, the same thing is true for astrology and alchemy, which is why the dedicated practitioner of any hermetic art was, in truth, a magician, or as the Bible put it, a mage or magus. You can't be serious. Hey, just think of those three wise men. At least one of them had to be an astrologer. And the guy who brought the gold? You gotta figure he was an alchemist. Is it too far-fetched to understand the third guy must have been a theurgist? And as for calling the magi? Hmm, uh, it's pretty self-explanatory. Yet, despite being known as magicians, the Vatican still calls them saints. Hey, uh, come to think of it, even dead saints have to make magic, or I mean perform miracles, in order to get elected into the club, don't you know? So, uh, why wasn't Simon Magus afforded the same courtesy? Uh, I don't know. I'll be back with episode 28 before you know it. While you're waiting, you might as well... Talk amongst yourselves! And, uh, oh yeah, you know the drill. Visit us on the web at www.betweenthelines.xyz Alrighty then. Ciao a tutti. Ciao, ciao.